0: So Leviticus, I'm so happy to see so many people here. I had some interesting reactions when people asked what we were studying, and I told them Leviticus. There was the eye roll. There was the awkward silence while people were wondering what BSF is doing this year. There was the, that's Old Testament law. That doesn't apply to us today. Why are we studying that? There's Leviticus is weird. It's full of crazy laws that don't make any sense. And honestly, it does have some crazy laws that don't make any sense to us in our culture. Don't let that throw you off from the main point when we get there. It's a law book. It doesn't read like Genesis and Exodus. I wouldn't sit down and read the Tennessee Civil Code at night. It is a law book. There's only two stories in Leviticus, and in both of them, somebody dies. There was my first reaction Oh, no, it's going to be me and the leaders, and that's all that are going to show up. (laughs) When I first became a Christian, I decided to read through the Bible in a year as a New Year's resolution. Got to mid-February, got to Leviticus, and my plan went completely off the rails. And I'm going to confess two years in a row. Um, My mother-in-law had a dream last night that a lot of people showed up, and somebody brought two ponies. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad to see a lot of people, and I'm glad nobody brought their ponies. (laughs) So Leviticus, why are we studying Leviticus? Well, I'll tell you later. First, let's look at the book. Let's start with the envelope. You know how when you receive something in the mail, you look at the envelope first. Who is it from? Who is it to? You can look at the postmark to see a date and a place. We're going to start with the envelope of Leviticus. Who is it from? Leviticus is from God. It's from God. All scripture is God-breathed. Through the hand of Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus is number three. The five books are called the Pentateuch or the Torah. In the New Testament, they're referred to as the law. And actually, most of the law is right here in Leviticus. You might be surprised to know that there's some controversy about Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch. Liberal so-called Bible scholars claim that these books were written during the Babylonian captivity 750 years later. They were not inspired by God. They were just collections of traditions and teachings that had been passed down over the years, some of them the same, some of them changed. Conservative scholars disagree with that. I disagree with that, and I think most importantly, Jesus disagreed with that. He referred several times in the Gospels to the writings of Moses. I think we can safely say that Moses is the author. There's a lot of internal evidence that Moses wrote Leviticus. Something like 38 times, you'll see this phrase in Leviticus, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the Lord spoke to Moses. And he wrote it down. If he didn't write it down, at least he dictated it. So the postmark, when was it written and where? It was probably written around 1445 to 1450 BC. Some people believe the Exodus was later than that in the mid-1200s, but most people say the mid-1400s. It was written after God claimed his people from Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they received the Ten Commandments and some other laws and instructions for building the tabernacle, and then they built the tabernacle. The Bible tells us the tabernacle was completed on the first day of the first month of the second year after they left captivity in Egypt. So the beginning of their second year of freedom. That's where Exodus ends, and Leviticus begins immediately. Numbers picks up one month later. So Leviticus was written during that one month period between the time the tabernacle went up and the time Numbers begins. Who's it written to? Well, Leviticus, the name means things concerning the Levites. Who were the Levites? The Levites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord appointed the tribe of Levi to care for the tabernacle. They were to disassemble it when it moved, carry it, set it back up. And when they camped, they were to set up their tents all around the tabernacle to guard it, to guard it from the people and to guard the people from it. So they were the temple caretakers and guards. But when we read Leviticus, we'll see that the book is about more than just the Levites. Leviticus is addressed to all of the tribes. And this is important. Leviticus is a continuation of the covenant that began with the Ten Commandments. So let's put Leviticus in context. Let's look at where this book fits into the plan of redemption. Remember, the Bible is one continuous story from the beginning to the end. God's goal has always been to dwell with his people. We see God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2. We see God's people, Adam and Eve. They're living in God's place, the Garden of Eden and the newly created earth. And they're living under God's rule and enjoying his blessing. Then the rebellion occurs in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve throw off God's rule, and so they forfeit his place and his blessing. Mankind's rebellion did not take God by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that from before the foundation of the earth, from before Genesis 1.1, God chose to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. It's always been his plan. And he makes a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 of a seed, a descendant, who will destroy the works of Satan. And we know that's Jesus Christ. So, if you look at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, you see God's plan come to fruition. God's people, the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the image of God fully restored in them, living in God's place, the new heaven and new earth that are now joined together, enjoying God's rule and blessing. No more sin or sorrow or death, no more curse. The rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, is how God gets us to that place. And Leviticus fits in that story. So before we get started with Leviticus, let's get caught up. It's been four to five years since we studied Genesis and Exodus. Um, For Israel, Exodus ends and Leviticus begins in the next breath. But it's been a long time since we've looked at them, so let's kind of do a quick review. Some of you studied with us before, and some of you haven't. Um, Some of you have studied the Bible for years, and some of you are new to it. So I'd like us all to start on the same page. So Genesis tells us that to start his plan of redemption, God chose a man, Abraham. Abraham was probably a pagan idol worshiper from the land of Ur. God didn't choose him because he was a good man or a righteous man. God chose him because he chose him. Genesis 15, 6 is one of the most important verses in Genesis. Tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You can see Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in that statement. Salvation has always been by grace through faith not a result of works. As we study the Old Covenant, um, I think we sometimes think of it as a covenant of works. We need to remember that salvation has always been by grace through faith, not a result of works. The Old Testament saints were not saved by offering sacrifices. They were saved by offering sacrifices in obedience through faith in God, their Redeemer. So God gave Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who was barren and way too old to be having a baby, a miracle baby named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob, the younger son, not because he was a good man or a righteous man. Jacob was a scoundrel. But God chose him to carry on his plan of redemption. From Jacob, God developed a family. Jacob had 12 sons. And their descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob's family, about 70 people, end up in Egypt as honored honored guests of their brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery, but who through God's grace became the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in power. And they lived there, as his guests. The book of Exodus opens 400 years later. Israel has become a multitude. There's a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, and he fears the great number of Hebrews living in his land. So the Hebrews are persecuted and enslaved. God chose another man, Moses, not because he was a good man or a righteous man, but because he was the man God chose. Moses was a Hebrew. He was raised in Pharaoh's court. He committed a murder and spent the next 40 years hiding in the desert as a shepherd. When God called him, he didn't want to go, but God chose him and he went. He sent Moses to free his people so that God could give them the land that he promised through Abraham. So that God could grow them into a nation and from that nation bring forth the promised seed, Jesus Christ. So through a series of spectacular plagues that God sent on Egypt through Moses and his brother Aaron, Pharaoh was forced to let Israel leave Egypt. God delivered Israel, his people, not because they were a good people or because they were a righteous people, but because they were the people that God chose. The Lord led the people to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, the people agreed to enter into a covenant with this God who has redeemed them. Interestingly, they didn't know the terms of the covenant when they agreed. They agreed because Moses said to them, God had told him, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people answered together, all the Lord has commanded us, we will do. So Moses prepared the people to receive the covenant. He had them consecrated, that is set apart. He had them wash, and he had them not touch the edge of the holy mountain where God was going to come down. They understood they could not touch it on pain of death. Well, why is this? Why couldn't they touch the mountain? The answer is because of the holiness of God. The holiness of God would destroy them. So let's talk a minute about the holiness of God, because that's the key to the book of Leviticus. Holiness is one of those church words we use, and we talk about it, and we sing about it, and we don't really think too much about what it means. God is holy. We think of holy as being morally pure, morally perfect. And yes, God is that. But when we speak of the holiness of God, we're talking about something so much bigger than that. The word holy is kodesh. And it comes from an ancient word meaning to cut or to separate. God is holy because he is separated from his creation. He created all things. He sustains all things. He's apart from and so much above all of his creation. It makes him completely unique, wholly something else than his creation. And sometimes I think we think of holiness as one of God's attributes. Holiness is more than this. Holiness is his essential nature. His love is holy love. His wrath is holy wrath. His goodness is holy goodness. His nature is holy. God is completely holy. And when he manifests himself, the space around him is completely holy. Think about Moses when he met God at the burning bush. What did God say to him? He said, do not come near and take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And Moses hid his face in fear. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he saw God and the seraphim were singing, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah just melted. He was undone because he knew he couldn't stand in the presence of God's holiness. God's holiness is completely good and morally pure. And it will destroy anything impure that comes in contact with it. Which is us, which is all of us. Every part of us is impure because of the curse. Our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies. Creatures who are impure will be destroyed by the holiness of God. That's why God stopped Moses from coming to the burning bush. That's why God set a boundary around the holy mountain so that the people couldn't touch it because they would be destroyed by his holiness. So the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and earthquakes and a loud trumpet and he spoke the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. He began his covenant with these words and they're important. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law was not given as a way to get to God. The law was given to people who were already chosen by God. The people were terrified at the sight of the storm and the sound of his voice. And they stood far off and they begged Moses, don't let him speak to us again. You speak to us and we'll obey what you say. So God gave Moses some more laws. And he wrote them in a book and read them to the people, and they again said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And the covenant was sealed with blood. Well, you know what happened next? Moses went back up on the mountain to get instructions for the tabernacle, and while he was there, the people rebelled. They demanded Aaron make them an idol, the golden calf, and they worshipped it, and they said, This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who will go before us into the promised land. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, and the people have already rebelled. That's a little bit over a month. Well, the people are judged. Moses intercedes, and God agreed to go with them into the promised land and not destroy them. Of course, that's his plan all along, that he's going to go with them and build them into a nation from which he can bring forth Jesus Christ. So at the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle is is built. You can imagine all the people standing around watching this tabernacle go up that they'd spent six to eight months working on. And Exodus ends near the end. There are these verses. This is Exodus 40, 34, and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord was dwelling in a tent in the middle of his people in their tents. But even Moses who had been allowed up on the holy mountain was not allowed to enter the tabernacle. Leviticus begins immediately. For us, it's been several years, but this is where Leviticus starts. God's dwelling there. Moses can't go in. Leviticus 1.1 tells us the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent. The Lord was in the tent. Moses was outside the tent. Why couldn't Moses go in? Because the Lord is holy and Moses is not. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened next exactly. But you can imagine the chaos in the camp. Use your imagination for just a minute. This holy God, who had terrified the people from the top of a mountain, was now smack in the middle of their camp. What was going to happen? Were they all going to die? Was he going to consume them with his holiness? You can imagine people backing up and packing their tents and taking off into the desert. How could they be around a God who is holy? Not only were they sinful people, they were covenant-breaking sinful people. And here's God dwelling among them. What are they going to do? Well, the book of Leviticus is God's answer to that question. Leviticus is God's gracious provision for a sinful people to live in his holy presence. For us, it's a dusty old book of laws. For them... Leviticus was life. This is life to them. This is how they are not going to be destroyed by God's holiness. So I tried to make you a PowerPoint. Let's just say PowerPoint and I have a complicated relationship. (laughs) And right now we're on a break. (laughs) I made all the individual slides, but I couldn't put them together in the big picture, which is what I want you to see. Um, So we're going old school today. That's why I'm up here in the whiteboards here. So Leviticus, God's gracious provision. Here we have Israel's sin. This big black tar pit of sin. Not only original sin, their sin nature, but covenant-breaking sin. They had just deeply offended this holy God. Right smack in the middle of Israel's sin, God comes down. Right in the middle of them. God's holy presence that no one could come near. Even Moses. The Lord called to Moses from the tent. Even Moses couldn't come near. So how were they going to survive God's holy presence? To be in the presence of the Lord who is holy, and everything around him is holy, the people must become holy as well. In Leviticus, this is called clean or pure, and you'll see those words a lot. The unclean, impure people must become clean or pure to be in God's presence. Leviticus is arranged in a really amazingly symmetrical manner, and that's what I want to show you. Because God loves his people, he provides them with clear ways to live in his presence, to know that they're safe living in his presence. And there are three categories of things that God does for the people he provides them with ritual, he provides them with priests. And he provides them with purity laws. In Leviticus, starting here, going through the book, you'll see on the second half of the book, there's another section on ritual, another section on priests, and another section on purity laws. The book of Leviticus goes like this. Ritual, priest, purity laws. These are the ways God has set up to make sure his people can be safe in his presence. So chapters 1 through 7. God sets up a system of ritual offerings. That's what the ritual is. It's offerings. One of the meanings for offerings is to draw near. The people were able to draw near to God through these offerings. There are five of them. Two of them are to say, thank you. Israel would offer back some of their flock or some of their crops as a way to say to God, thank you. I know that everything I have comes from you. Three of them were sin offerings. When Israel had sin, they had to make atonement. That's another word you're going to see a lot of in Leviticus. It means to cover over. Their sin had to be covered over to be in God's holy presence. Now, Romans 6:23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. As sinners, it is we who deserve to die. But God has graciously offered to Israel that they may kill an animal, and that animal may be the substitute for them. The animal's death is accepted by God in place of their death. That's what the ritual sacrifices are about. Okay, there's another set of rituals at the end of the book, chapters 23 through 25. And these are ritual feasts. There are seven of them. The Lord gave them these feasts that they were to celebrate every year. These feasts were a way for Israel to rehearse and remember and think about and celebrate different aspects of their relationship with this holy God. Yes, there are sacrifices involved in the feast, but these feasts were mostly celebrations and family reunions. Think about Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. That's what these feasts were. So the second set of things God gave them are priests. In chapters 8 through 10, you see Aaron and his son, two sons, um, ordained as priests. The Lord provided priests for Israel, someone to stand between sin of Israel and the holiness of God. Being a priest was a dangerous business. The closer you are to the holiness of God, the more dangerous it is for you in Israel. Um, The priests had to do their job exactly as the Lord commanded. And in this section, in chapters 8 through 10, you'll see what happens to Aaron's sons. They just waltz into God's presence with strange fire that he has not commanded them, and they are consumed by his holiness. That's one of the two stories. And Aaron is ordered not to mourn for them. It's dangerous to be close to God. Okay, so the other section on priests is in 21 through 22 you see the qualifications for being a priest. Priests had to be perfect physically. They had to be ritually pure. They had to be morally upright. Again, because priests were going to be next to the holiness of God, they had to be the best human they could be. Their job was to represent the people before God, to mediate for the people, and to represent the holiness of God to the people. So then we have the third provision God has made, and that's the purity laws. In 11 through 15, we have ritual purity. This is the weird section. This section contains the food laws, which animals they could eat and which animals they couldn't eat. There's been a lot of debate about this list, about why some animals were clean and some animals were unclean. The truth is, we don't know. Maybe the point was just obedience. This section also talks about things that make a person ritually impure. Childbearing, skin diseases, bodily fluid contact, touching mold and mildew, um, touching a dead body, all of these things make a person ritually impure. It's important to know that ritual impurity is not sin. This is just part of the messiness of life. People did come in contact with these things. All it meant was, if you were ritually impure, you couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. Usually you waited a few days or a few weeks, you made a sacrifice, you took a bath, and you were were pure again. I think I, I read an article that was a good way to describe this idea of ritual impurity. Let's say you tell your children to go out and weed the front flower bed, And let's say they actually do it and it's dinner time and you call them back in and they're all dirty. Would you let them sit at your table? You would make them wash first. That's the idea of ritual impurity. It's not sin. The children were not sinning. They were doing what you told them to do. It's just part of mess. But you have standards for your table and they're not going to sit there all covered in mud. It's the same way with what ritual impurity is about. And ritual impurity was meant to point the people to the need for moral purity, which is the next section. This is 18 through 20. And that's the moral purity laws. The moral purity laws are prefaced by this phrase, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. God was leading them into a land filled with some very sinful people, and they were to be separate. They were to be wholly different from the people in Canaan. These are laws about sexual conduct, about child sacrifice, don't do it, about idolatry and witchcraft, about caring for the poor, about loving your neighbor, about having integrity in your business, about having personal honesty, about social justice. Those are the things you find in there. Israel is to be totally morally separate from the Egyptians they left behind and from the Canaanites in the land they're going to. So you may have noticed we skipped over 16 and 17. 16 and 17 are the centerpiece of the book of Leviticus. 16 and 17 talk about the day of atonement. Now people were supposed to take care of their sins when they happened. Some did, some didn't. In a camp this size, I'm sure there was sin that went unnoticed. I'm sure there was sin that people didn't even know they'd committed. So the Lord appointed one day of every year where all the sins of all the camp for the whole year would be taken care of. It was a day of cleansing for the entire camp. That was the day of atonement. And that's the centerpiece of Leviticus. Um, you're going to talk about it more when you get to that lesson, but it involved, it was a long ceremony, and it involved two goats, which are the centerpiece of the centerpiece. One of the goats, the high priest would confess the sins of Israel over him, place them on his head, and the goat would be killed in place of the sinner. The other goat, the priest would confess the sins of Israel over him, symbolically place them on his head, and he would be driven away into the wilderness. Symbolizing to the camp, their sin had been atoned for and carried away out of God's presence. So one day every year, the entire camp was cleaned by this ceremony. So Leviticus ends with chapters 26 and 27. And Moses calls the people to be faithful to the covenant calls them again in Deuteronomy to be faithful of the covenant. Joshua calls them to be faithful of the co- to the covenant when they enter the promised land. All the prophets throughout all the Bible call them to be faithful to the covenant. They're not, and neither are we. So did it work? Was Leviticus successful in allowing a sinful people to live in God's holy presence? Yes, it was the Lord's plan. It was successful. And we see when the book of Numbers opens, this is a little phrase that is the opposite of Leviticus one. Numbers one says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. Moses was allowed. A sinful man was allowed to enter the tent. Unclean people can be made clean to live in God's holy presence through the means he has provided. For the Israelites at Mount Sinai, it was Leviticus. It was life to them. For us and for everyone else now, it's Jesus. He is the one who cleans us to enter into God's holy presence. He is life to us. So back to the question, why in the world are we studying Leviticus? I'm going to give you four reasons, they're not in any particular order and there's lots more reasons. <laughs> because it's scripture. That should be enough. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Leviticus is part of scripture, and that's why we're studying it. Second reason is to learn more about the character of God. Laws reflect the character of the lawgiver. For example, in this country, we value private property. So there are laws against stealing and embezzlement, vandalism. What is it that God values? That's one of your questions each week. And I'm going to ask you to please give it serious thought. What is it that God values? The question will speak to us about things we should value because we are image bearers of God. We should value what he values. Third reason is to grow in our appreciation of what Jesus has done for us. And what we've gained as a result of our restored relationship with this holy God. If you read Leviticus and you miss seeing Jesus, you've missed the point of the book. Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. And I don't think you see it any more clearly than you see it in the book of Leviticus. I hope Leviticus will make the gospel message richer to us. And the Lord Jesus more beautiful in our eyes. And fourth, again, these are not in any particular order. This maybe should have been first, to think about our own holiness. The key verse in Leviticus is 19.2. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This command is repeated in the New Testament. First Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Are we being transformed into the image of God? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? Are our thoughts and our behaviors and our ideas separated from the Egyptians and the Canaanites in the society all around us? It's a serious question, something to think about and pray about as we read through Leviticus. So let's pray. Oh, Father... I thank you that you have preserved scripture for us. Um, It's going to be difficult for us to go through this book, but I pray that you will make things clear to us. You will help us see you and help us see Jesus in this. And Father, we're so grateful that you have given us a way for an unclean, impure people to be in your holy presence. You've told us we can come boldly before your throne of grace. And Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done to make that possible. And we thank you in his name.